I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Hebrews 2, 10-18 For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, He himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Well, hey, church, I hope and pray that you are doing well today. I'm excited to be continuing in our series through the Apostles' Creed with the next line, which reads that he, Jesus, suffered under Pontius Pilate. Now, the Apostles' Creed singles out that Jesus suffered specifically under the character of Pilate, the Roman governor who uh, now lives in historical infamy, who authorized Jesus' crucifixion and oversaw the events surrounding all that took place in his last days. And the inclusion of Pilate's name, uh, it serves to ground the events that are described in the scriptures and in the Apostles' Creed in real time and space. These events really did take place, and the mention of a historical figure helps remind us of that truth. But while these events surrounding the crucifixion and Pilate's involvement are the culmination of the suffering of Jesus, I think this line actually encapsulates the entirety of Jesus' earthly existence. You see, sometimes the creed is criticized for seemingly overlooking the life of Jesus, jumping from the virgin birth right to his death. However, this line about the suffering of Jesus, it really does mark and summarize his entire life. In fact, I don't think it's a stretch to say that Jesus' whole life was one that was marked by suffering. So far, we've acknowledged that Jesus is the eternal Son of God who came as a man in the incarnation and was born of the virgin birth. But as this divine Son takes on flesh and blood, he is not received, acknowledged, or worshipped as he ought to be. Instead, what we see is that he is rejected over and over and over again. And in this rejection, he suffered immensely. 
And this suffering is in addition to the common suffering that all humans face in this broken and fallen world that Jesus also encountered in his full humanity. So today I want to ask the question, what do we make of the God-man who comes and suffers? Well, the book of Hebrews is going to help us see what all is going on here, while also inviting us to recognize that the suffering of this divine God-man was necessary for him to accomplish his work. Here's our main idea this morning from Hebrews chapter 2. Jesus is suffering with and for humanity qualifies him as our sympathetic savior and faithful high priest. Jesus is suffering with and for humanity qualifies him as our sympathetic savior and faithful high priest. And as we look at that, I want to see that over three points this morning. I want to look first at the solidarity, then secondly, the success, and then lastly, the sympathy of Jesus' suffering. So let's begin with the solidarity. Look back at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10 with me. This section opens by saying, It was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should be made the founder of their salvation, perfect through suffering. Now, the unknown author here begins by saying it was fitting, as in it was proper, it was appropriate that the founder of our salvation be made perfect through suffering. Now, when it says made perfect, it doesn't mean that Jesus was lacking something or that he was sinful in some way. No, as fully divine, he was already morally perfect in every way. Instead, what the author seems to be getting at here is that our Savior, in order for him to truly be our Savior in the fullest sense, had to suffer. He couldn't just come and live a perfect moral life and then die on the cross. There's something about the suffering of Jesus that qualifies him uniquely to be our Savior. The suffering stamps and validates what he has come to do and brings it all to completion. But it was precisely on this point, the suffering of Christ, that Jesus was most misunderstood. The Israelites seemed to have an expectation that the Messiah, the Christ, this person who was promised would come and they would come in victory. They would come and rule and reign over all the peoples, overthrow the Romans and all the enemies of God's people, and he would come victoriously as this obvious military conqueror and this impressive king. But it was when Jesus, the king of the kingdom that he is bringing, brought up his own suffering. And when he mentioned his impending death, that his followers were most confused. They just couldn't seem to understand how this fit into the bigger picture. They couldn't reconcile that this king Jesus, who is ushering in the kingdom of God, would live a life that is marked by suffering and want instead of victory and spoils. They assumed if he suffered, something had gone wrong. But this was not the case. This had actually been promised. In the striking and startling prophecy regarding this servant of God who was to come, Isaiah chapter 53, which was written some 700 years before the incarnation of Christ, says this. It says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. 
That passage goes on to spell this out in even greater detail, but you get the idea of what this prophecy is saying. You see, the people wanted a savior, but what they missed is that this savior would be a suffering savior. And the suffering of Jesus is not an accident of history. It was always in the sovereign plan of God. Hebrews says that it was fitting that it happened this way. And it was fitting because this suffering, it makes Jesus the founder of our salvation. Now, this word for founder can also be translated as a champion or our pioneer. Now, think about a pioneer for a moment. A pioneer blazes a trail so that others can follow behind them. They go first. They brave the danger. They risk whatever they might encounter, but they willfully take on that risk so others can follow in their footsteps in the future. They can lead others to this new land or country that they're exploring. Well, Jesus, as the pioneer of our salvation, is leading us to the land of glory. But this glory can only come through the path of suffering. Charles Spurgeon reflected on this reality, I think, in a very beautiful way. He says, there are many points in which Christ could not save us without suffering. He could not be a perfect substitute unless he bore our sin and shame. And he could not be a perfect sympathizer unless he bore our suffering. This, perhaps, is the main point in which Christ is perfected. He became capable of entering into all the griefs that disturb the many sons whom he is to lead to glory. Listen to what he says here. In our elder brother, the heir of all things, there is the epitome of all the sorrows of all the rest of the family. Do you sense the solidarity with Jesus, our brother, in his suffering? This is exactly where the text goes. Look at verse 11 and following. It says, For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers or brothers and sisters, saying, and then he quotes Old Testament three different times. He says, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. When it says that he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified have one source, it literally means we have one family. And that language is all throughout those verses. Did you sense it in the reading? I mean, have you ever been embarrassed by your own family? Now, I know many of you are sitting in the living room right now, so just be honest with one another. At some point in time, you've been embarrassed by your family members. Right? I mean, remember how you viewed your parents when you were a teenager? Remember how you viewed your siblings when you would invite that person over you wanted to impress? And if we stretch this a little bit, we probably have some things or some people that we're embarrassed about in the household of faith, in the church, don't we? Well, this text tells us that Jesus never views his family that way. Even though we, as humans, wanted no part of what he was rightly owed as the creator of all things, the text says, for whom and by whom all things exist, Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. He is bringing many sons to glory, which, by the way, is not excluding women. It's raising their status to being heirs with God alongside Christ. And then we are called children of God. You see, the incarnate Jesus Christ has such a solidarity with us as humans that he is willing to make our pain his pain. The suffering that we experience, he has experienced it firsthand. But because of his work, he has been made perfect through suffering, and that means we are headed to glory. And all of that means 
as we consider Christ's suffering, that our suffering ought to take on new meaning and purpose. Maybe the Apostle Peter said it best in his letter in chapter 4 of 1 Peter, verse 13. He says, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. You see the connection between suffering and glory. Maybe that ought to encourage you today. Are you suffering today? Are you feeling the sting of brokenness that just permeates our world and our lives? Are you just simply beaten down in this moment? Listen to this good news. We have solidarity with Jesus Christ. He is the man of sorrows, and his suffering was not in vain, which means our suffering is not in vain either. And the reason why it's not in vain is because of our second point, the success of Jesus' suffering. Look at verses 14 and 15. The author says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he, Jesus himself, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. The text says that Jesus had to partake or share of the very same things, and specifically here, it's our flesh and our blood, in his incarnation so that he could bring about a victory. But the only way he could achieve this victory for us is if he suffered with us. He cannot achieve this victory for us unless he suffers with us. After all, if Jesus didn't become like us in every way, then we might view him like some kind of superhero. Maybe he's someone like Superman who comes from another world and swoops in and saves the day, but he's not somebody that we could ever truly identify as a fellow sufferer and a fellow human being along the way. That's why Batman is better than Superman, but we'll come back to that later. That's not what the scriptures tell us. They say that Jesus fully identifies with us, becoming fully human so that he can accomplish this victorious work on our behalf, achieving a victory that we could never attain without him. Specifically, the success of his suffering is spelled out in two ways. First of all, this text tells us that Jesus destroys the very power of death itself. Listen, death is not the way it's supposed to be. Humans were created in God's image for glory and for eternal communion with our creator. But the very moment sin entered the world, so did death. It was the one consequence of sin that God explicitly mentions to Adam and Eve in the garden. And now, because of that, death has spread to all people. And death is an intruder and an enemy. But what we've done in an increasingly secular culture is we've pushed death to the peripheries of our life. See, in most every other time period in human history, death was something that humans were forced to deal with all the time. Before modern medicine, before hospitals, nursing homes, hospice care units, which there's, of course, nothing wrong with those things, death would just happen at home. You would often deal with the death of the young and the old, of your close friends and family, right before your eyes. Life expectancies were often far shorter in human history than they are now, and death was just a part of life. But despite this reality of pushing death to the edges, here's the problem. The mortality rate is still one-to-one. Every single human being encounters death. It cannot be avoided. Things like a worldwide pandemic wake us up and force us to reconcile this reality whether or not we want to. 
But the author here reminds us that through the suffering of Christ that leads to a crucifixion, he actually destroys sin, death, evil, and the devil himself once and for all. He became like us in flesh and blood, even to the point of tasting what we all taste, death itself. But it's in his death that he crushes the head of the ancient serpent and strips him of all of his power. He announces the death of death once and for all. He complete, his completed suffering announces the beginning of the end of suffering itself. His perfect life, his sacrificial death, and his resurrection three days later proclaims a victory over the power of death. And secondly, in this text, that means that Jesus also frees us from our slavery to the fear of death. The fear of death is a powerful thing. The author here goes as far as to say that we live in a lifelong slavery to this fear. Now, this fear of death could be for any number of reasons beyond what our time allows us today. But if you are a person who is approaching death with any kind of uncertainty, or you are pondering what happens when you pass away from this life, there is always going to be fear there. Tim Keller, in his new little book on death, uh, observes how if we really grasped the good news of the gospel, if we really grasped all that Jesus accomplished for us, it would free us from this fear. Listen to what Keller says. He says, all religious talk about death and the afterlife, all, sorry, all religions talk about death and the afterlife, but in general, they proclaim that you must lead a good life in order to be ready for eternity. Yet as death approaches, we all know we have not even come close to doing our best. We have not lived as we ought. So we stay with warrant enslaved by the fear of death until the end. But Christianity is different. It doesn't leave you to face death on your own by holding up your life record and hoping it will suffice. Instead, it gives you a champion who has defeated death, who pardons you and covers you with his life. You face death in him and with his perfect record. To the degree we believe, know, and embrace that, we are released from the power of death. Brothers and sisters, we no longer need to fear death. Jesus' suffering and crucifixion and resurrection has released us from our lifelong slavery to it. And death in the scriptures is described as our first, our greatest, and our last enemy. If we have been set free from that enemy, we can live in a freedom like we've never experienced before. So are you living in that freedom today? Or are you paralyzed by fear? Are you still gripped by the uncertainty of what is to come? Look to Christ. Look to the pioneer of our salvation, the one who has destroyed the power of death once and for all. But if you're anything like me, my life is still marked by fear in so many ways. Each day is a struggle, and I think Hebrews knows that, and this text wants us to help believe that good news of the gospel even more than we do right now, which is what it goes to in our last point, the sympathy of Jesus' suffering. Look at verse 16 and following. It says, For surely it is not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. He helps us as humans. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. 
Again, the author of Hebrews is making it clear Jesus had to become like us in every respect, in every way. And as he closes this section, he draws attention to the fact that Jesus is our merciful and faithful high priest. Now, high priests had the important job of being mediators between a sinful people and a righteous and holy God. They were to oversee the sacrifices that would be made to atone for the sins of the people so they could stand clean before a holy God. But there's something far greater about the priesthood of Jesus than any of the priests who came before him. Because of the incarnation, Jesus can uniquely serve as the mediator between God and man because he himself is uniquely both God and man. And he's not just the high priest who oversees the sacrifice. He himself is the sacrifice. He lays down his own life on the altar. Jesus is the only high priest who also makes propitiation for his people himself. Propitiation is the idea of a sacrifice that wipes away sin and also restores favor with God. And because Jesus suffered in both of these roles, the text reminds us that he is able to help us when we are tempted. What an incredible truth to cling to. He is able to lift us up in our suffering. He's able to strengthen our weak knees and our feeble hands and give us what we need to endure until the end. Jesus uniquely knows what we are going through. And he is both sympathetic to our plight, but he also has the real power to help us because he himself has overcome the power of sin and death. Now, sometimes people claim, well, that sounds really nice on paper, but I mean, Jesus is God. I mean, Jesus never sinned. How could he possibly identify with me and my suffering and quite frankly, my sin? Maybe Jesus doesn't really know what it's like to help me. Well, let me leave you with this reflection from C.S. Lewis that has always been an encouragement to me. Here's what Lewis says. He says, only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives into temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. Do you know how powerful the high priest that makes Jesus? He's fought off temptation for the entirety of his earthly life to the bitter end. He was obedient at every turn. He became like us in every way, and yet his life was marked by suffering. But it is in that suffering that Jesus becomes our sympathetic Savior and our faithful high priest. And he looks at us and he says, I know what you're going through, and I can help you. So as you're watching this video What's going on in your life? Where is there suffering? Where is there temptation? Where are you just in this moment wanting to give up and give in? Where do you turn for help? Well, I would argue that Hebrews is pointing us to the only source of help in the midst of the troubles of this life, and that is Jesus, the one who in every respect has been made like us and is there to help us and strengthen us in our time of need. Jesus did indeed suffer, but he suffered with and for us. And that's good news we ought to turn to today. Let's pray. 
Lord, we thank you that you came and you lived the human experience to its fullness, even to the fullness of experiencing what we all will face in this life, which is death itself. But thank you that, Lord, the grave could not contain you, that you were raised from the dead, that you hold the keys to Hades and death in your hands, and that they no longer have power over us. So, Lord, deliver us from our fears today, our fear of death, our fear of the uncertainty of the future, whatever has gripped us, and remind us that you are a faithful and merciful high priest, that we can turn to you, even in our sin, for help, and that you say there is no condemnation for those who are in you. May we live our lives with the newfound confidence that brings us, and may that cause us to worship you in gratitude today. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources, information, and opportunities to connect with us at the King's Church, please visit our website, kingschurchlkld.com.